The Planchet is a product of the American Numismatic Society. Become a member and support this podcast. Go to numismatics.org slash membership. That is numismatics with an S dot O-R-G slash membership to see options and prices. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Planchet Podcast from the American Numismatic Society. I'm Andrew Reinhard, and my guest today is journalist and historian Eric Brothers, who is breathing new life into numismatic writing. His recent articles have appeared in Financial History, and since 2006 he has written regularly for The Numismatist. The ANS published his debut article in ANS Magazine in 2022, The Sham of American Bimetallism, and he's currently working on more eye-opening features for us in 2023. Eric's non-numismatic bibliography is extensive and includes the 2012 book Berlin Ghetto, Herbert Baum and the Anti-Fascist Resistance, articles on the theme of resistance, plus other writings on Woodstock reunions and the counterculture. Welcome to the Planchet, Eric. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. Yeah, no, I appreciate you taking the time. And and uh, just going back through your bibliography, <laughs> you, you are one fascinating guy. Um, and I, I think my first question after reviewing that is, is how does one jump from writing about Woodstock uh, to writing about numismatics? I didn't... No, it was unusual until I had a conversation with somebody in 2021, and then I realized that I was a polymathic writer. Up until that point, I just saw it as a natural thing to just write about different topics, because I saw nothing unusual about, for example, writing counterculture features for high times, and almost literally at the same time writing footnoted scholarship on the Jewish resistance in Berlin and interviewing Holocaust survivors. So how did you find your way to, uh, to numismatics, you know, as a, uh, as a kind of a general topic to write about? Well, I first discovered numismatics as a child. I grew up in Fortley, New Jersey, and I remember going with my class. I remember this very vividly. There was a history bus in our town at a strip mall, and it had a bus of history uh, artifacts from New Jersey. So I went on that bus in my class, and I saw what I learned eventually were the New Jersey coppers with the horse head and the uh, plow. And that made a very strong impact on me, and I didn't realize it until maybe a few years ago that that may have been the... Uh, inspiration for my wanting to collect coins. So, um, with the you know with, with the coin side of things, I mean, do you actively collect now, or is this something that you kind of pick up here and there? Um, well, I actually collected when I was a child until I until I was about twelve and I stopped, and I picked it up again. Um, actually, in two thousand three, I dropped it for many years, and I, I collect from time to time. I have very small collection. Um, I mostly am interested in the writing. And to answer your question, how I got to writing about numismatics, um, when I moved to Florida in 2002, I decided to reinvent myself. And I wanted to reinvent myself and I wanted to return to numismatics. And also I wanted to return to acting, something which I did for several years. And when I joined the coin club in Florida, I discovered the uh, American Numismatic Association. I didn't know about the ANS just yet. And I um, found the magazine The Numismatist. And I said to myself, wow, it would be nice to write for a magazine like this. 
because I had been writing about the resistance and the Holocaust and uh, very dark topics for many years, and I wanted to just lighten it up, you know? Yeah, no, I under, understood. Uh, again, I was, I was reading your work, and you wrote a recent editorial for the numismatist about numismatic fairy tales. And I am wondering if you could give us an example, you know, or maybe one, maybe two, of uh, you know, what these fairy tales are and why they're important to address. When I started writing for the numismatist, I was under a naive assumption that much of the work was well-researched and scholarly and authentic. And I found out that a lot, some of it was not. So, and I started seeing these things come up on a regular basis. And for example, um, the trade dollar was a failure. Writers would just say that point blank, trade dollar was a failure. Define what a trade dollar is for those people who don't know. Okay, the United States trade dollar was a coin struck for the China trade between the United States and China from 1873 to 1878. It was created for that trade. However, because of the price of silver lowering, the value of a trade dollar became worth less than $1. And then people started minting the trade dollars and circulating them in the United States. So even though it was a failure in the United States, it was a great success in China. So with the uh, with the fairy tale aspect uh, that comes in, uh, is it basically you know taking a look at you know, kind of a commonly held belief by the numismatic community and then seeing if you can flip it on its head and uh, demonstrate the opposite, or or um, you know where where does the uh, where, where does the myth making come in, and, and uh, do you see yourself as a mythbuster? Well, I'm basically some people consider me a mythbuster because I kept I would read articles and see references to the failure of the trade dollar. And then I, I wanted to just do some research to see if, if that was actually so or not, because I didn't see any research behind it. It was just a statement in an article, like the trade dollar was a failure. So I went on the internet and within five minutes, I found a historic essay um, giving evidence that the trade dollar was a great success in China, which was its intended use as an instrument of international trade. It took me five minutes to find that evidence. And based on that essay by a man named David J. St. Clair, um, it gave me the impetus to write my feature for the numismatist called The United States Trade Dollar, A Rousing Success Story. With the, uh, with the trade dollars, now these, these aren't bills, right? These are coins? No, these are coins. These are dollar coins. Okay. And so you know, who, do you know who, who feature, who's featured on the obverse and what evidence do we see you know, of the Chinese trade? You know, are, are these, are these you know, stamped in some way? Are, are, uh, you know, this is, this, as, a numismat, numismat, excuse me, as a numismatic generalist myself, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I just don't know. And so, That's okay. Um, on the obverse is Lady Liberty sitting on um, a platform which surrounded by uh, goods for trade. It's a, it's a very interesting uh, imagery of, of Lady Liberty um, surrounded by trade goods. And um, it has the weight on it. Uh, 420 fine, uh, 0.99, 420 grains silver and 0.900 fine, which made which made it at the time heavier than the uh, Mexican dollar, which was the the major um, trade piece in China. So with um, 
you know, with, with these other kinds of myths, are, are there other you know, numismatic sacred cows that you're taking a look at? Um, you know, the, the, you know th- things might seem a little funny or, 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 or uh, you know, we just kind of accept things on face value without you're really drilling down, you know, back into the literature to see, you know, if, if things are actually the case. Are there you know, any other topics that you're considering right now? Anything that you're pursuing that you published on before? I'd like to just discuss one other fairy tale that I debunked. May I do that? Yeah, of course. Okay, I kept reading this statement in by authors without any source material to back it up that the silver mine owners and the Comstock Lode had sponsored the Bland-Allison Act of 1878 in order to have a steady market to sell their silver. Okay? And I read this from different authors would say that basically the same thing was like they were basically parroting each other. And I said to myself, similar with the trade dollar, you know, is this true? You know, because all these people are saying it, but I couldn't find any articles in the numismatist about it. So all these authors were saying it. So I did, again, I did like five minutes of research and I found scholarship, actual scholarship that proved that those men did not sponsor Bland Allison. In fact, they were moving away from the silver mines because it was being uh, exploited too much and they were going into other uh, financial areas. You know, once, once you publish this, uh, has there been any kind of, of blowback or response from other folks or are people like, oh my God, I can't believe we missed this. And then all of a sudden you've changed numismatics for the better because you're like, here, you know, this is, this is the, this is the evidence. And uh, what's, what's the response been? Or, 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 or do you, do you know? I got blowback <laughs> okay. from the, uh, not from the trade dollar one. Yeah. With the one about the uh, silver mine owners and the Bland Allison Act, I got into a, um, a an author wrote to me via email. It didn't publish it. It was a uh, private emails between us, mm-hmm. and he basically said that I was wrong about several points in my manuscript. And um, again, it was a private email correspondence. And um, what I did was I said to myself, well, let's see if he can put his money where his mouth is. And I wrote to him, you know, I said, your ideas are very interesting. I'd like to incorporate them in future articles of mine. So I would greatly appreciate it if you would send me your source material. Please send me your PDFs and Internet links to uh, sources so I may review the material, what you're basing your ideas on for my future use. And he wrote back to me that he had no source material to send me. I mean, it's, yeah, it's one thing to make a claim and then have the evidence to kind of back it up. And, and mm-hmm. you know, this happened, you know, I'm an archaeologist. That happens in archaeology all the time where somebody said, publishes something and it's like, that's based on this. And then a few years later, somebody comes back and says, well, not quite. And here's my, here's my evidence. Here's what we found on our excavation or something. And, and yeah, but, but to, to have somebody, you know, come back and, and criticize the work and not be able to, to back it up with, with you know, any, any previous publications or any previous research or evidence, that's, yeah, that's that's a little above and beyond. <laughs> that was I was honestly I was quite blown away by that because if I did that as a researcher in the Holocaust or the German resistance and I claimed that a, a different scholar was making errors and I just said that and I didn't back it up, my reputation would be mud 
and I would not get published again. But in this instance, nothing happened. Um, you know, as a journalist, um, you're always gathering uh, sources. You're returning to your primary sources when you're writing. And, you know, I was, I, was, I was wondering, you know, so for any given numismatic topic, you know, where do you start with the source material? Is there any kind of go-to place where it's like, I'm going to begin here? And, you know, do you have this kind of clearinghouse of information that you reference? Are these... You know, printed, is this printed source material? Do you, do you do web searches? Is it a combination of both? I have an account with JSTOR, and I have and I have a knack for finding stuff that other people can't find. It's just I've always I've been that way for a while because it's a combination of hard work, luck, and serendipity, serendipitousness. You know. Sure. I mean, you know, when uh, you know, I, I assume that you know when you're pulling up articles in JSTOR, maybe one of the first places you go to is the bibliography. Um, it's like, okay, I'm at this source. What are these 30 other sources that this individual has put into their research? And then you kind of follow that that trail or... or... Um, how do I, okay, this is how I do it. For yeah. example, I was doing a piece on the... When I did my piece on the trade dollar, not the one for ANS, the one for the ANA. Mm-hmm. My base, I was basically debunking the myth by proving, showing evidence that it was a success. So, and this has been the last several years... My most important sources have come from the American Numismatic Society. I was finding all this great material in the American Journal of Numismatics from the 1870s, because that's all in JSTOR. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that that old the stuff from the first series. You know, we've got the two series of the AJNs and the original uh, OG <laughs> AJNs. You know, from from the 1800s. Um, yeah, I think they're all up there for for anybody to use. You know, I think those are open access, um, and so you can get in there and mine that stuff. And I I think that you know some folks forget that we had that earlier edition of the AGN where people can go to. But but sure, if, you know, if people go to the American Numismatic Society's area of JSTOR and they can start drilling down, you know, to see you know what all is there. That's a great place to start. I wrote an essay, an article about the medals of Adolf Weinman. And from what I can tell, it's only the third article ever written about his medals. And the first two were A&S from uh, Sidney No and Barbara Baxter. Oh, wow. And I, and I have, and my article is from my research, the third article to do a survey of his medals. Right. Uh, for, for those who aren't familiar with his work, can you tell us a little bit about him and, and uh, the, kind of, the kind of art or, or iconography that it was using? Okay, um, Adolf Weinman is famous in coin collecting circles for designing the Walking Liberty Half Dollar and the Mercury Dime. Okay. Okay, two classics. And right, and I've collected them over the years, and I've had them, and I've always enjoyed them. But when I look at stories, I want to do a story that hasn't been told, you know. So I just started digging, like into the metals, and I found a really great wealth of material in the ANS, you know, and I would find my own, and I would find material beyond the ANS sources in JSTOR and just being able to find stuff on the internet, you know. With, uh, you know, with the articles that you write um, and, and and your book as well, yeah, but specifically for, for the numismatic articles, I'm wondering, um, we, we have a lot of, a lot of listeners um, who are writers themselves who are publishing either their collections or they're, they're publishing numismatic research, you know, as part of their you know, PhD studies mm-hmm. and everybody writes in a different way. And, and uh, you've been doing this for a while and you do it very well. So I'm wondering if you could kind of let us in 
on your process, you know, from, you know, where you get the germ of the idea to doing your manuscript. And I'll, I'll make the difference here for you. Uh, and, and so for, for those of you kids listening at home, there is a difference between a manuscript and a typescript. <laughs> and so, you know, can you, can you, you know, just tell us how do you go from like start to finish, you know, from, from the germ of the idea to, you know, handing something in for publication. I was looking for ideas back in, I think, 2015. And I would just look at pictures of coins and medals and just, and if something would strike me, I would just say, oh, let's, let's do that. You know, I've always, I had taken a class in the French Revolution and I even taught a, a short class at a private school in Manhattan on the French Revolution. So I found some work done by Augustin Dupre, the engraver, the French engraver. So I said to myself, okay, let's see what he did. And I found out he was the engraver general of the French Revolution during that period. I asked my editor at the time, Barbara Gregory, and she said, go do that article. So I, what I did was I actually found a book on the French Revolution that discussed him. It wasn't about him, but it was about the French Revolution. It was scholarship. Um, so I, I got that book, and I found scholarly essays on the Internet. And I found amazing images from uh, heritage auctions of uh, his work and other other um, sources and I put together a story and when I write an article it's a story it's not a report it's a story I want it to be a narrative I want to tell a story that will pull the reader in and keep him or her interested till the last word and that's basically what I do I tell a story using my sources and using the imagery and not just discussing the numismatic art, discussing the events that brought the numismatic art to be. You can't talk about the um, coins and the medals of the French Revolution without talking about the French Revolution. No, precisely. Be, no, be, before we get into that topic, because that's that's something specific that I wanted to I wanted to raise as as uh, one of the questions, uh, because it's super important. That's something that we should really go down. Um, mm -hmm. Before we do so, um, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, about your method of, of of writing, and it's not just about the storytelling, but it's the the mechanics of it. And you're you're very old school. You're very Hemingway like <laughs> in your approach to actually um, literally putting pen to paper. So so. How um, how do you go about writing, and or I should say, how do you go about drafting? All right, I'll give you an example. When I wrote when I wrote the uh, ANS article, the the sham of American bimetallism, I had an idea that I originally I, I met um, I met Jesse Kraft at a at the uh, a coin show in Orlando in July of. 2022 at the Summer Fun Show in Orlando. Yes, and Jesse Kraft is our, our American curator, for those who don't know him. And um, I had a great conversation with him, and um, I put together a story idea that I shared with him and asked him how would how would the ANS magazine possibly like this, because I hadn't approached Peter Van Alphen yet about this. So he, I told him that, and he just, he just liked it a lot. And... Um, it was basically the end of my article. It was about how Mexico played an important role in ending bimetallism and bringing about the trade dollar. Okay. So I sent the idea to Peter Van Alphen and he loved the idea. The problem was he wanted a 5,000 word article. And the idea I had was about 800 words. <laughs> uh -oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> so, so what I did was 
I said, okay, I need an introduction. However, the introduction became the article. My introduction was American biometallism and how it led to that point where the trade dollar had to come into play. Okay. So what I did was I knew what I was going to do. So I surrounded myself literally with photocopies of source material. And I also had some full books on from uh, JSTOR or on the internet where I, I had access to on my, uh, my PDF reader. And I had a spiral notebook and a pen. And I sat down and I said to myself, okay, where do I start? And I just started writing about how Alexander Hamilton developed bimetallism. And I was on a tear for several weeks. I wrote in longhand um, this story, just blending all these sources, sources I was familiar with, but I had never written specifically about bimetallism before. So I, I was writing this story and just every day I would just keep writing it. I would go between the computer and the desk and my table and just write and just look at the sources and, and write footnotes. It was, I had not written footnotes in an article in a while, so it was a bit different, but it, was, it wasn't that bad because as I was writing it, if you write the footnotes, you know exactly where you are. You don't have to go back and add footnotes, you know? I, I certainly do. You know, <laughs> having written some papers of my own, yeah, you have to do it at that time. Otherwise, right. you're totally sunk. You know, you're never going to remember and you're going to be kicking yourself and, and wanting to go back in time. So that's how I that's how I wrote that piece, The Sham of American Biometallism. And I just wrote it as a, it was basically a stream of consciousness piece, just like I was just writing, like, as I was looking at the sources, it was just like, it was just, everything was just going so smoothly. I just loved writing that piece. And it ended up being almost 7,000 words. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the stream of consciousness approach, I think, is is common to a lot of writers. I was just reading a, an interview with Margaret Atwood, and that's how she wrote uh, Handmaid's Tale. She sat down and crunched it out. And as soon as you get it all out, you know, it might be a little bit of word salad, but then you can go back and, and start revising. And so, you know, do you just do the first draft by, you know, in handwriting, you know, with your with your pen or pencil and your spiral notebook, and then do you edit as you type it in? Here's here's my process for the just for the sham of bimetal the sham of American bimetallism. Mm -hmm. I wrote it, and I know this is going to sound weird. <laughs> I was finished with my draft in less than three weeks, seven thousand words, including footnotes, almost seven thousand words, and then I typed it up when it was. Usually, I type it up in the midst of writing it, but I was just so blown away. I was just writing and writing and writing. I didn't type it until I was done with the manuscript. So I typed it up. I printed it out. And typically I do a lot of editing for those manuscripts, but I only did some copy editing. I said, oh my God, it's done. Huh. And there was very little copy editing. I made my corrections. And then I, I wanted Jesse Kraft to read it before I sent it to Peter because I want his feedback first. Sure. And he was traveling in Europe, so he, he didn't get to read it for a while. And then he got, he liked it. And I sent it to Peter and Peter accepted it. Yeah, this is one of those those dream articles. <laughs> but you you want to have at least one of these uh, in your in your writing life. You know, just, mm -hmm. just it, you know, it's, it's the research is fun. It's uh, it, 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 the first draft flows out. You can lightly edit it. And then, you know, it's a, a slam dunk with the editor. Um, 
that that's pretty rare, you know, but it's, it's great to hear um, that uh, you, you were, you know, fortunate with this, with this particular piece with the, uh, you know, now going back to your, to your process of, uh, especially the handwriting and, and the reason I'm, I'm getting back to the point um, is for, you know, some of the listeners who are doing the writing um, who might've only done research in writing electronically. Um, what, what benefit do you see in, doing a pen and paper version prior to putting it into a TypeScript form for editing? I can see the words. I can, it's more of a connection with the writing. Mm -hmm. I feel more connected with my writing. I feel like it's more organic that way. I had tried to write an, a few articles directly on computer and I just felt empty and just, it felt bare. It felt mechanical. It didn't feel real. Was it just because of the speed, you know, cause I know that when I write and when others write, you know, on computer, for example, you know, we go really fast. And so, you know, do you find that, that by writing, it forces you to slow down and think? Is, is that part of it? Well, that it does make me think and it helps me. Plus, I do my editing on the handwritten manuscript. So it's like I don't edit all the time. But once I get something down on paper, I know I'm I'm started, you know, so it helps me. It's part of it just feels right to do it in handwriting. I have a few. I have a few different pens. I use. I have a. I switch colors. I put the date. I start at the top of the section I'm writing, so I have a record of when I wrote it, so I can look back and say, "Whoa, I got a lot done that day," you know. <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, yeah, yeah. But it's a process that I really enjoy. I mean, I'm. I love writing this stuff. I love writing about numismatics, and I felt when I wrote that piece for Peter and the ANS. Um, by mentalism, I felt so excited and inspired. I felt like I didn't have to attack a myth. I felt like I didn't have to prove something that people didn't believe. I felt like I'm, I'm reaching a community that will look at a piece of scholarship or work and just enjoy it. Okay. Uh, I'll ask you one more technical question, and then I want to ask you the big question. And so the technical question... Um, our, our collections manager is, is you know, John Thomason, and he is a big fan of fountain pens. And I'm just wondering if, if you're there with with uh, like your Mont Blanc, you know, scribbling away, or is it just one of the you know dime store, you know, Walgreens big pens, and you just happen to pick whatever's at hand and you just start going. I my favorite, are, I have sharpies. Ah, okay. I have sharpies, and they're sort of a, I can't tell if they're they're not a gel pen, but they're. Uh -huh. They are gel. They're called S gel. Okay, yeah. And they they come in the packages of green, blue, red, and black. Mm -hmm. And I hate when they run out of ink, but I and I buy more. But yeah, they sure. always run out in the middle of a great sentence. You know, uh, is that's the worst. Um, <laughs> and and then you can just watch it change color. You know. <laughs> As you're going, it's like, okay, this one, this is when I got the new pen. Uh, do you do you keep your manuscripts uh, when you're done, or, or do you recycle them, or do you just put them in a folder? And The last few years, I've been keeping them. Yeah. So in case, I don't know if anybody down the road want to look at my work, you know, I don't know. But I was recycling them for a while, and then I realized, wait, let me just keep this. And I, and I would just, I'm making files of different articles I'm writing, because... Some files will have like my type, my manuscripts with editing on it, and then I'll include the handwritten part. But that's about, yeah, you know, I keep them. Lately, I've been keeping them the last several years. You know? yeah. 
No, I think that's great. I mean, you know, for one reason, you can always go back to the original, just like going back to your primary right. sources and see, well, why did I think that? Or, or, you know, why did we change this? Or what was the reference there? Um, so I, I hinted earlier at the big question. We actually touched off on that earlier in the conversation. And uh, we spoke about this prior to actually starting the recording also. And you had this term, and I really love this term. I really love the idea behind it. And uh, the term is macronumismatics. And we were talking about it earlier, and I, I want you to explain what the, what macronumismatics is. What does it mean to you? How did you how did you you know come up with the term? And you know what does it mean generally for scholarship, and more specifically for your writing? Okay, um, I found it. I never saw the term until recently. Honestly, I I just bounced around the internet, and I found a giant document on the. Uh, International Numismatic Conference in Poland last year yes. that uh, Peter Van Alphen contributed to, and I and I found two brief sections that actually documented a bunch of my work, and I was just blown away because nobody's ever documented my work in scholarship before, and I was just wow. And either it was either Peter's short essay or another author, and they used the word macronumismatics, and I never heard it before and I looked it up and it's not really anywhere around but it's basically what I've been doing for several years which is taking numismatics and writing an expanded story that goes well beyond the coin or the medal or the token or the piece of paper and tells a story and I've been doing that for a while because it just seems natural to me because if you know who created the coin or a medal and you're writing about the metal, why not write about the person who made the metal? Why not find everything you can about that person? Because that person who made the numismatic art is part of numismatic history. Numismatics is not just a piece of metal, a piece of paper, um, a coin. Um, as I like to say, numismatic history is much more than numismatics. It's uh, it's context, um, and you know when we were discussing this uh, this earlier, you know we were talking about things being just you know part, part of a network, and the coin doesn't necessarily have to be in the center of the network either. It can be an outlier, you know. It's, it's, it's yeah, maybe you were talking about the French Revolution earlier. You know, the French Revolution might have been at the center of the network and was causing some of these things to be right. produced. Uh, you know, for example, and, and I'm wondering I'm wondering if you could if you could, you know, help us drill down a little bit more about, about, uh, you know, this idea of context, um, numismatic context and, you know, the idea of a numismatic network. Okay. Um, for example, I sent you my article on the Nazi Zionist medal. This is a very provocative medal. And I've been wanting to write this feature for a long time. And I, it was published in the numismatist in December of 2022. It's called the Nazi Zionist medal. And it was a medal issued um, in 1934, and the story behind it was um, when Hitler came to power in 1933, the Zionist Federation of Germany sent him a memo. They were trying to become involved in politics, and they wanted the Nazis to um, look at Zionism as a, as a solution for the Jewish question at the time, and they wanted to basically partner with the uh, Nazi government to help Jews leave for Palestine. They did not get a response from Mr. Hitler or his government. So um, 
the executive board of the Zionist Federation of Germany sent one of their members to find a Nazi party member who was connected, who was in favor of Zionism. So this man, Kurt Tuckler, found a man named uh, Leopold von Mildenstein, who was an active Zionist. He was a Nazi, but he was a Zionist. And he was going to Zionist conferences and attending conferences and friend, becoming friends with Zionists in Germany at the time in 1933. And they, he met this man and they talked. And um, Tuckler asked von Mildenstein to, um, would he be interested in going to Palestine and writing about Jewish life in Palestine to help the Germans know about what's going on there and, and to promote a Jewish immigration to Palestine. And the man said, well, I'll only go if I get permission if you come as my guide. So uh, von Mildenstein and Tuckler and their wives uh, went to Palestine and spent a month together. And then after one month, um, von Mildenstein remained and spent five more months in Palestine traveling around on his own. His wife and his and the Tucklers went back to Berlin and they um, Tuckler did a whole bunch of, he traveled around, basically did a road trip around Palestine, interviewing people, going to kibbutzes, going to the cities, going to Tel Aviv, um, and wrote like a, over a dozen articles that were published in a Nazi newspaper called Der Angriff, which was ironically owned by Josef Goebbels, the propaganda minister. They were also published in the Folkische Beobachter, the leading Nazi magazine newspaper. And the medal, the Nazi Zionist medal, which on one side has a Jewish star and the other side has a swastika, was a promotion for the newspaper articles and to promote Zionism in Germany um, among the Nazis. The challenge in writing the article was this. There was very little material on the medal itself. However, the way I approach it, which I call macronumismatics, is that the story of numismatic history is not just a piece of metal. Because if I just wrote about the piece of metal, it would have been a few paragraphs. And what's the story in that? So I wrote the story of the people who brought this metal to be. I wrote the story of the interactions between Tuckler and von Mildenstein. I wrote about him going to Palestine. I wrote about the articles. I wrote about his career in Nazi Berlin, which he actually used his Zionism to have a job um, working for Reinhard Heydrich, of all people, at the, uh, at the security department. And, and it was, um, it's a complicated, difficult story to write, but it's a fascinating story. And those are the kind of stories that numismatics should have. There should be fascinating, interesting, compelling stories that go beyond the coin, because the coin of the medal or the token is part of the story. And if you look at a a big picture, the big picture, you have, you don't have coins without the story, the history behind it. You don't have coins or medals or tokens without the people behind it. And that's what makes those stories richer and more interesting. So about macronumismatic um, writing, and, and uh, this really, you know, this is something that, that the ANS you know, tries to foster. Um, and this kind of numismatic storytelling, there are really three different kinds of writing that we do or that we publish. You know, one is the, is the kind of the story angle. And 
you know, so, you know, for example, in our new journal, well, it's, it's six years old now, but the Journal of Early American Numismatics, a lot of this is personality driven narrative. Who is this person running this mint? Who are these counterfeiters? Um, why was this particular coin produced at this particular time by this particular person or people? And and so we have that kind of, of writing going on. Another kind of writing that we that we publish a lot is we, we just do straight catalog. Um, so it's like, here is a list of all of these coins from this particular collection and they're organized in some way, um, you know, which, which is great, you know, to have that, those kinds of lists. And then, you know, we, we also have a kind of middle ground where we have, you know, kind of highly technical writing along with catalog and the writing is, you know, we call it synthetic text or basically it's synthesizing all of the coins that are in this particular catalog. What's special about them? Where do they come from? What do they represent? How do they illustrate? Um, and and so you know we do all three, um, but but you know as, as far as the storytelling goes, yeah, the, the the brand of journalism that you do and that we see in some of our other publications is very much not necessarily focused on the object itself. The object is part of the story and part of the narrative. Um, I'm wondering if if there's any other anything else that you would had written or are anticipating writing you know, maybe for the magazine or for one of the journals that, or, or something that you might've done for the numismatist um, that follows that kind of storytelling arc or, or maybe, maybe, maybe you, you started with the coin and you're like, wait, there's a whole lot more going on than I realized. I did a piece in the numismatist in 2016 and I didn't realize at the time, but it was macronumismatics. And I also didn't realize at the time it was groundbreaking because a piece like that had never been written before, but I, I had gotten literally no feedback from it, from the readership or from editors besides them liking it. Um, it was uh, about the uh, key date coins of 1921, the American key date coins of 1921. Because I would look for themes for idea, I'd look for ideas for articles that connected more than one coin, for example. A lot, of, a lot of the coins in 1921 were key dates. So I'm curious. That's My main thing is curiosity. I'm curious and I can do good research. So I said, why do all these coins rare in this year? And I discovered that there was a depression in 1920 to 21. So I started researching the depression to tell the story of the coins. So I was looking at economic historians. I was looking at financial historians. I was talking about the uh, gross domestic product. I talk about the economic inflation during World War I, um, the, the dip in the price of silver. Um, after the armistice of November 11, 1918, inflation accelerated, building up a seemingly unstoppable head of steam. The Fed was worried that inflation would deplete the Treasury's gold reserves. Consequently, between January and February 1920, the Fed raised the discount rate on borrowing money from 4.75% to 6%, the biggest rate hike in its history, thereby triggering the Depression, which lasted until July 1921. No article about coins of 1921 ever mentioned that. They just talked about this being a rare coin. You know, most articles about 1921 coins were hobby articles. Mm -hmm. I was taking it and looking at it from all different angles. I looked at the depression of 1921, the consumer price index. I'm looking at the uh, Dow Jones industrial average. I'm looking at 
and I didn't know this until I did the research, the deflation, the deflation was 18% during that depression, which was greater than any single year of the Great Depression. And, and it's just all these terrible things led to these rare coins because people didn't need money because they were broke. You know, these coins were just a result of a terrible, horrible time in our history when people were starving and, and collectors don't get it that sometimes these, these historic events bring about these coins and they think they've got a rare coin and they are happy to have the rare coin, but the events that brought the coin about were not so happy. Well, it's true. And I, I worry if we find ourselves in a, in, in a situation like that, you know, in the near future, in the distant future, what's, what's going to happen? Because, you know, with, with things as they are digitally, you know, mostly, you know, electronic banking and all of this stuff, you know, what's our numismatic evidence going to be? Uh, for whoever's coming after to understand that period of our history. Right. It's difficult because numismatics seems to be, I mean, coins are not what they used to be. You know, coins are not as important as they were. I don't know what numismatic evidence there'll be in the future or even now, you know? No, it's, it's, it's difficult. And, you know, what we see maybe coming out of the mint and, and other things, you know, they're still producing coins and, and we still, you know, can use, you know, physical currency when we're, you know, doing transactions and stuff. And, you know, for a lot of the, the mint made material, um, you know, we see things that are you know, comm commemorative, you know, or for collector's market or, 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 you know, reminders of history, which is all, all well and good. But, but yeah, I do, you know, I do wonder what's going to happen, um, you know, as we, you know, continue down this, this digital road and especially, you know, if that intersects with, uh, you know, a recession or a depression or something, you know, in the future. Um, mm -hmm. Wow. So maybe we should end on a happier topic. Okay. <laughs> I think so. Um, yeah. I, um, I know you've got a lot of irons in the fire um, with, uh, you know, future numismatic articles. And I know there are some things that you're keeping under wraps while you're working on, while you're working on them before you turn them in. Is there anything, you know, that you're working on that you, you know, want to let us know about, you know, publicly for the podcast, or should we just kind of wait and see over the next uh, few months? There's some big stories I'm writing. I've, I'm putting together. I'm, I'm sending one to Peter uh, next week. That's groundbreaking because the evidence has been sitting around for years, and nobody put the puzzle pieces together. You know, it's it's remarkable. You know, with with the work that you've been doing. You know, and, and the writing for the Numismatist since 2006, and then you know writing for the ANS magazine. You know, starting last year, um, you always seem to kind of find your way to these. You know, special topics or, or you find you're able to find the evidence to um, you know contribute meaningfully to the history of numismatics or whatever it is that you happen to be studying and and you know, that's a skill you know I, I can't think it's just dumb luck I, I, I I'm just wondering you know how you, you see this kind of magnet for uh, um, you know for, for just new ways of looking and I, I don't know you know, what, what it is about your background or your history where you're able to ask these questions that nobody else is asking or able to find things that nobody else has found. Um, is it, is it luck um, or, or is it skill or is it kind of both? It's a, it's a, it's a weird mix of lots of things. When I was a small boy, I asked my father questions all the time and he thought there was something wrong with me. <laughs> 
because I wouldn't shut up. I would <laughs> ask questions all the time. And he had me tested. <laughs> and according to him, I have no idea if this is true. He said that my IQ was 152. Oh, wow. So I have no idea if he made that up or if it's real. Uh-huh. I never had it tested myself, but in the last, in the later, in my later life, I seem to be having this great potential to do this kind of stuff, you know, as, as a writer, you know, it's not like, I'm not like, I'm not a polymath who can invent airplanes and invent machines. I'm a polymath and where I can look at topics, very diverse topics and understand them with great ease simply by reading about them. You know, I'm not afraid to look at stuff that's foreign to me because that's how you learn. And that, that's, that's what you, that's, that's it. You know, it's curiosity. It's curiosity and it's taking what other people, it's like all these stories are sitting there waiting to be told. All the evidence is there. It's all there. I take these stories and I find one germ of a source and that source will send me on a down the rabbit hole. That rabbit hole is fascinating because I look at stuff that's been available for hundreds of years. I'm looking at evidence. I'm writing, I wrote a story and the evidence has literally been sitting around since 1791. 1791, evidence to tell a story that should have been told over the course of the last few hundred years. And all these different scholars and all these different information and all these different pieces, there's all these pieces that are sitting around. It's like when I tell people these stories, they don't believe that they're there, That, but it's not an easy thing to do, but it's, it's what I do because... I'm going to try and give you an example without giving away my story, okay? Okay. If certain coins disappear from our shores and never come back, there has to be a place they're going. There has to be a reason they're going and not coming back. Are they competing with other coins? Are they worth more somewhere else than here? Are they worth less somewhere else than here? Are they overvalued here and thus become trade instruments? See where I'm going with this? Yes. I can't go beyond that because I don't want to give away my stories. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. I don't know if polyna- polymathiness <laughs> is a word, but we're going to make it up. Um, and uh, your ability for synthesis and pattern recognition, um, you know, it's, it's, it's perfectly suited for numismatic research because, as you know, that's what numismatics is. is it's, it's a combination of all of these things, not just the material culture mm-hmm. and, and, and the object itself, but also, you know, the geography and the economics and psychology and and just you know archaeology and in art and design and the times you know that 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 produced all of these things into this just huge nexus of of uh gosh i don't even know what (laughs) but yeah yeah go ahead for example i i would be sitting around i would find material I, when I was doing my research on the trade dollar for the uh, numismatists that was published in 2022, I found source material on the trade dollar that led me to a different story. That's going to be published in July. I can share that with you later on. But it just hits me like a thunderbolt. I'll, I'll read something. I'll say, oh, my God. I found 
two pieces of material, two source material from the ANS, written about a year or two apart, that set me on a path to find, to write a story that's never been written before, that's never been explored before in world history. And it's a big story. It's a big story. And it's just, I still can't believe I find these things. It doesn't make sense that I'm the one to find them when all these other scholars have been around forever. But it seems, and this is where I see a difference. There seems to be a status quo among scholars where they write certain topics and don't go beyond the pale. I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems like, how come they didn't come up with these stories and I'm doing it? I don't know. You know, you know people I think are, are safe in their wheelhouses. Um, you know, they, they have their, their silos in which they write, um, you know, and it's a kind of comfort perhaps. Um, but uh, this, this leads me, uh, let this, let, let's, let's uh, have, have this be the, the last question because I have a feeling that there's lots more to discuss and, and I want to, I want to come back to you, you know, in a few months or next year or something to, okay. to, to revisit some of these topics because it's okay. like we're hinting at these articles and things, but then they'll be published and we can come back to them and all. But um, one of the things, and this just drives me crazy about myself, and my own work is because I'll be writing something cool or I think it's cool anyway. And, and, right. and, and, and yeah, the exact same thing happens to me. It's like, I, I like, what about this? And what about this? And, and those could be full fledged articles themselves. So how do you keep from being distracted? You know, you're writing this article, you've got to finish this article, but you have these other cool things that you've just uncovered that really, you're really interested in. So how do you stop from being distracted by those other really interesting things to finish the job at hand? Okay. Um, I was writing the article on the trade dollar for the ANA. Yeah. And I found these, and a lot of the sources were from the ANS. I mean, that helped me write the article, you know? Um, it was reprints from Mint reports and other stuff and newspaper accounts and stuff. And I found two sources that were related but not within the framework of my story. So I put those aside and I said, that's going to be my big story. That's going to be the story that defines me. And it, it was those two sources from the ANS that I put aside in a different folder and gave it a different name and said, okay, that's for net, that's for later. And I, and I went back to that, and I literally spent the most time I ever spent on an article, on that article. I did two revisions, two total rewrites, and even a third rewrite. I spent, not totally, but I spent three months working on this story off and on. I cannot work on something three months straight because I'll just be crazy, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I come up with interesting titles. I even do some I do art directing sometimes. I, I come up with ideas for a, a layout or a, or a title or, or a font. I mean, I have a background in advertising also. I was an advertising copywriter off and on for several years. You, you have done everything. I know it's a bit ridiculous. But um, I was a copywriter at Publishers Clearinghouse back in the 80s for a year. I was a, I was a freelance copywriter at Barnes & Noble in New York. Okay. I did technical copywriting at a place in Manhattan and also Queens. And I learned, and, and this, the, the listeners may find this interesting. My writing, I learned how to write about numismatics by reading great literature. I learned how to write numismatics by reading the authors who can tell a story. Because a lot of scholars, not all, a lot of scholars have trouble writing. They, they're taught 
to do their research and they put down stuff in words. I read Hemingway. I read John Steinbeck. I read F. Scott Fitzgerald. My greatest influence was W. Somerset Maugham. Um, but I also studied advertising writers. There was a man named David Ogilvy who ran a big agency, a worldwide agency. And what he said, I read his book. It was a book called Confessions of an Advertising Man. I read this back in the early 80s because I thought I was going to be the next big thing in advertising. <laughs> it didn't happen. But um, he said that when you write copy, you have to write it in a manner where um, a high school dropout and the college professor can read what you wrote and not feel they're being written down to or written up to. You have to write in a simple, plain, elegant style. Um, w. Somerset Mom once wrote, uh, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And that's how I write. And that's my guy for writing. This is great. You know, we haven't yet talked to anyone about the numismatic writer's life or, or about, you know, numismatic authorship and, and these kinds of topics. So it's been, it's been an absolute joy to kind of get inside your brain for a little bit and poke around and, and, and see what's there. And you know, there's a lot. And I know that, that uh, you know, many of the listeners will, will have a lot to take away from our discussion today. So thanks again for your time and for your curiosity. So yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.